Welcome to episode 188 of Control the Controllables. And a big, big welcome to you if this is your first time listening to Control the Controllables. I'm sure today's guest, Pat Cash, is going to bring a few of you out of the woodwork. And once you've listened to this one, you can have a have a work through the other 187 amazing episodes, amazing guests. And to our regular listeners, it's a thank you to you because with your help, we have become the best tennis podcast at the Sports Podcast Awards for the second year running. And we couldn't do that without you guys, without you voting, without you sharing the podcast far and wide and getting it out there for people to take so much from these episodes that they bring back into their life. So a big, big thank you. And and for me, a big well done to the amazing team, the amazing team that sits behind me and does the real work on, on this podcast. You know, they, these guys are amazing. They manage to make us sound better than we actually are. They, they bring it together. They spend time working behind the scenes, making sure that I have everything that I need when I go into these conversations with the guests. And a special, a special shout out to, to Vicky, who you will be hearing from at the end of the show, and also to Faye, who works tirelessly behind the scenes as well. So a big thanks to to all of you for that. And whilst I'm on that, just I haven't asked for a while, but if you could just spare one minute as well, just to jump on whatever podcast platform that you are on. Give it a like, give it a subscribe, and leave a leave a review, an accurate review. You know, it just it's if you don't feel that you're getting what you want from the podcast, then tell us. You know, that's also okay. But just spending a minute to do that on your platform really does help the podcast. But on to today's guest, and women love him. And boys want to be like him. You know, the the great rock and roll star who came onto our screens all of those years ago with the checkered headband, like I say, the rock and roll persona. And then he went and established himself as a legend in the game forever as he won the 1987 Men's Wimbledon Singles title. And I'm proud to say this is the first... Wimbledon singles champion that we have had on the podcast. We've had many legends of the sport, but to be able to have someone who I've watched growing up, you know, someone who I've idolized and and wanted to be like, and and so many of us have, and to to watch his career as a player, and then as he's gone into the world of coaching and punditry, you know, we know his voice well, you know, he's, he speaks very openly, very honestly, and he really is a brilliant guest. So wherever you are, enjoy. This is Pat Cash. So Pat Cash, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Thank you. Yeah, very well, thank you. Uh, I'll hear congratulations is in order for you guys. You won an award or something last week or a week before something? Our, our first guest since we became the two-time Tennis podcast of the year, Pat. So, right. uh, so thank you. You're the first person to congratulate us in person. <laughs> so thank you for that. And and as I look across, Pat, I, I, yeah, I've got I've got mixed feelings because when I see you, because you were one of my idols when I grew up. You know, so I I watched you, I I looked up at you, I I loved how you played. However, you're also part of a big part of my insecurities. Because, oh, yeah. because we had the same coach, and the coach 
that ah. coached you to to winning Wimbledon oh, was the Barkers was yeah. the coach who for four years told me Jesus Dan Pat could smash that over the back fence on the on the backhand smash or Jesus <laughs> Pat could lift that weight or Pat could do this so yeah. I was. I was forever compared to you in my junior days and never quite lived up to it. So I don't quite know how to make it when I'm looking across at you. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> you, yeah. you, you, you certainly came up in topic a lot of conversation a lot, and rightly so. And we'll get into all of that, Pat, as well, because you've obviously had a, an incredible tennis career as, as a player, as a, as a personality, as as so many things, and anyone in the, in the, in the game of tennis knows all about you. But... It is the question that can be asked a bit too much, and I don't want to just ask the samey, samey questions, but how do you, a, a son of a, of a football player, you know, someone who will get into the bad boy image in a bit, how how does a sissy sport like tennis come into your world? Yeah, look, I think um, yeah, we've got to cast our mind back a long way, of course, to, to the, the days when tennis was a, a massive sport in Australia, and we had you know, loads and loads of champions, um, just one after the other. Uh, obviously, I caught the end right at the end of um, Ken Rosewell. Yep. But, you know, there's the era of, you know, Rod Laver and, and Roy Emerson. And, I mean, I'm going to miss about a dozen players, uh, you know, uh, Stolly and Fraser and and Roach and Newcomb. And uh, Roach and Newcomb were sort of heroes of mine and caught Ken Rosewell. And I obviously knew about Rod Laver um and then i got to learn about frank sedgman these guys early pro days of the pros and you know there was loads and loads of tennis courts it was, it was one of the biggest sports yeah. um now it's even hard to find a tennis court in, in melbourne and uh in sydney particularly in a city sydney is really hard to find a court okay. um you know tennis courts are, are valuable real estate aren't they and they had to be almost allocated for recreational purposes these days which is kind of sad but Look, so many kids play tennis. Everybody played tennis. Everybody played Aussie rules as well. And yeah, so my, my dad was a football, Aussie rules football player. He was a lawyer. He just wanted to play tennis socially with my mum. And, you know, I uh, went down to Kuyong for first, my first tennis lesson. And he thought that's the place to start, which was, of course, the home of the Australian Open yeah. back in those days. Um, but right down the back courts were, were clay. Um, and that's where I really grew up and played most of my tennis um, right until I sort of you know, 15 really um, on, on the clay. So I was primarily a clay court player, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of like the English clay. It was like shale. Uh, that was very, very similar to that. And Melbourne had a lot of rainy weather. So, but my coach uh, Ian Barclay, who I, who wasn't my first coach, was probably my, set, my second coach. Um, uh, he had a great bunch of juniors and, you know, Barker's is like, get in the bloody net, get in the bloody net, you know, move your feet, move your feet. You know, and hear all those, hear those uh, sayings that he used to say, which are, but uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't like playing volley, serve volley or, at all, but right, okay, that's forced me to play doubles. And then in the, in the, in the summer it was all grass. Yeah. So I got to learn the best of both worlds. And so um, my, you know, my, just my dad wanted to play tennis and I just came and joined along and I still played Aussie rules. I still did my athletics. I was still uh you know, running in the athletic team at school and playing cricket. I was a cricket captain. You know, I was doing all sorts of stuff. And, uh, um, you know, tennis was just one of those sports I could play all year as opposed to just yeah. a season. And what, one, of, one of my beliefs, actually, in, in the UK system, I've said this a few times on the podcast, that almost Wimbledon is negative to the UK production of tennis players in some ways. And I think it's maybe times are changing, but almost because 
and I was guilty of this as a player. We set ceilings and we almost think, right, well, if I'm ranked 150 ATP, I get a wild card. And there mm. wasn't that many people that were, I guess, treading that that road before us that we could relate to, you know. And I would even say in my time it was Greg and Tim, but we, they were kind of untouchable. We kind of didn't really know them. They weren't really treading the path. From what you're saying in that era, do you think you're on the back end of the great Australian era? Was that almost normalised that, well, if you're going to be one of the best in Australia, you're going to be one of the best in the world, which from a mentality standpoint is massive? Oh, um, I never even really thought about that much, that much. But I think we had, um, at least we had the blue, we certainly had a blueprint, didn't we? We knew that we had to work really hard. Yeah. Uh, Harry Hopman was the, the famous coach who used to take Australia Australian players away. Uh, and he was a, well, the manager of the, the Australian team back for that in those days for 20 years or whatever it was, a long time. And, you know, the tennis world was different then. You used to travel over on, on a, you know, either on a boat or or, or as a team and, and uh, travel forever. But, you know, the, the, the blueprint of hard work has really stayed throughout in the Australians, uh, that was that was the number one thing. You just, you work you work hard. Yep. Don't worry so much about the the, the technique. That's it's um, I think is was probably in a, a little bit of my downfall with injuries and everything like that. But um, you know, we, and we had luckily we had great ex players that were happy to get on and, and have a hit with us and, and to play with us. And uh, Neil Fraser was always there, and there was tour players Ray Ruffles. He took us on on teams and. Um, you know, and that, that was, that was great. I mean, if you look now at what tennis Australia, the ex players that are involved in tennis Australia who are available, there's almost none of them, they, they, they don't just don't use them. I mean, yeah. what a complete and utter waste of opportunity. Now the Brits, you say, okay, you've got Tim and Greg and, and, you know, Jeremy Bates, he obviously has worked in the, the British, British system, uh, Chris Wilkinson, um, I'm sure I'm forgetting getting a forgetting a few, but you know those are the main two guys. You know Bates and Wilkinson are regularly there, uh, which is great. Um, but we had a plethora of yeah. opportunities to hit with with players. Um, so we had a lot of great champions who, who led us the right way, and we've still got a lot of great champions sitting in Australia that just aren't used. Um, which is, I think, you know, tennis in Australia have done done pretty well. Considering, but consider how much how bad how much better it could have done if they'd actually used uh, the Darren Cahills who lived there and and uh, you know the ex players Jason Stoltenberg does a little bit of stuff but yeah. you know the ex champions there's 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 a lot of really good players that are out out there and uh, you know so, but we we had the opportunity to use them in, in our era. Why don't they use them now? I don't know. You'll have to ask them that. <laughs> um, Oh, look, I think they probably like to have a, a system and uh, some regular uh, systematic stuff where the, the coaches, the young coaches can come in and, and uh, you know, travel and uh, that's, that sort of stuff, perhaps. Um, you know, an incident this summer where there's a young a young girl that I've been following and, and um, you know, I know I spot, I went and watched her play the Australian Open and saw some things in her game that were, to me, very obvious. Uh, I talked to her afterwards and I said, look, I'll talk to your coach and I'll talk to the head head guy there. And if, you know, and I'll, I'll tell them if they want to know, I'll, I'll, I'll give them my input yep. uh, for free. I'm just, you know, I've, I've just been following her for a while. And, and the message came back. No, thanks. Anyway, we don't want too many voices in her head. Uh, 
I said, okay, so you'd prefer to have the wrong voice in their head than a, a right voice. And I was like, yeah, that kind of sums it up. Um, and that was, that was sort of, you know, it's just a nail, another, just another thing that I shake my head about. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, okay, whatever, you know, if that, they don't really, if they're not even willing to even listen to what I have to say, uh, you know, they could take it and throw it away, do what they want. I'll say, oh, okay, you know, we'll keep an eye on that or thanks, just thanks anyway. And it was like, no, we don't, we're not interested. So, so there you go. So that's, um, you know, that I, I, I don't, I don't quite understand. And I've been in the UK for living th- here in the UK for 35 years and I've had one meeting. So one, one meeting with the guys, I said, well, what can you do? And I said, what would you like me to do? Oh, I don't know. We'll have a think about it and call you back. And that was a good 20 years ago or something. And I never, never got a call, never got a call back, but I, I'm opinionated and I know what I know and I know what's, what's right. Yeah. And sometimes people don't like to hear, Oh God, okay, listen, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Um, every time I go to, to the national tennis center there, uh, you know, I see the guys working really hard, but I see stuff. So I just go, Oh my God, what are they doing? I mean, really, I'm like, oh my god! Can you give like, us any without naming names? Can you give us an example? Well, uh, one of the times recently, uh, recent years, I went out there was uh, uh, what took player that I was traveling with out to to play with a British player, and there was about three courts the in- indoors there that the, all those pro players pros playing one, two, three. Yeah. Down the end, blasting and a stereo like. Uh, a big stereo system were some so the guys were doing some cardio tennis or fitness stuff or something like that. And here we got three pros playing and two courts away, a yelling and screaming, got dip, bloody music dan- blaring and whatever. And I said, wait a minute, what is this? Is this a freaking nightclub? You're yeah. putting a freaking nightclub two courts away from three courts of pros who are going to be out, go out and play the French Open and, and, or whatever it was. Uh, I, I just I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, how on earth is this possibly happening? And, and it just every time I go there, I scratch my head and go, oh, but, you know, they, they, without being critical, they do a lot of good things. But, you know, there's, uh, you know, the guys are working really hard and there's some really good coach, coaching out there and, and in um, the LTA and in Australia as well. But... Um, there's a lot, a lot of talent that's not being used as well. But it, but on, on that point is because people are scared of outspoken people in general. You know, unfortunately, I think in in federations, and again, this is not me just bashing federations, but a lot of people are middle managers within federations who who are quite happy with yeah. their jobs. You know, and and status quo is quite a nice place for certain people. You know, and rather than rather than things being challenged. But if True. we take if we take the game of tennis and you've been heavily involved to a very, very high level for a lot of years, you know, almost 50 years now, Pat, you've you've obviously seen the different stages. What has changed in the game, but probably more important and important to that, linking into what you're saying about how someone like you can add such value. What hasn't changed? Almost what are the non-negotiables that back in the 1970s, 80s are the same now in 2023? Well, I'll tell you what hasn't changed, and I get this I get this question thrown at me a bit. I remember working with Brandon Nakashima. Yep. Uh, I worked with Brandon for about nine months a few years ago, rebuilding his technique and his game. Great kid. Worked really hard, and he had to play on a center court. And I said, "Let's come out, come out, and let's let's have a look at the center. Let's go kind of have a look at that center court." I can't remember where it was now. 
Um, it, was a, it was a big court. I was the first time I played on a big court, you know, and I said, come on out, come on out. And I sat there with him in the corner. I said, have a look at that. I said, do you notice something? He goes, no, what? I said, the net is the same freaking height as the practice court. Yep. The, the lines are the same freaking size. You can't have more than two serves. I said, the rules are exactly the bloody same in my day, in your day, on that back court or on that center court. I said, nothing yeah. changes. It's, it's the same court, just constant. And, they, and there's a ball, yellow ball you got to hit. In my day, of course, Wimbledon, there was white balls at one stage. But Although those balls but, do change yeah. from tournament to tournament. They do, they do. That's true. But, you know, the, basically the principles are the same, right? It's just like, and that, that hasn't changed. So, you know, movement, you know, we know more about movement, but the great movers past eras, you know, Bjorn Borgs, uh, the McEnroe's who float around the court, you know, move just as well as these other guys. Maybe they're a few inches shorter than than some of these these players that are out there now, but they still moved unbelievably well. They still had to hit the ball over. They still had to play under pressure. They still had to come up with the goods when it mattered. They still work on the depth of the ball. They still work on the, you know, the 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 the, the, the fine tuning on the on the volleys. Obviously the volleys in my day you had to had to hit a lot more because uh, of the because of the rackets. But you know the rackets and often I pull out my old Wimbledon racket and 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 give it to a player and they first thing they notice is oh my god this is heavy i yeah. said just hit a few balls with it and they go bam and it's an old magnesium or aluminium um racket that uh that, that i won wimbledon with it was only out for prince magnesium it was only out for a couple of years players loved absolutely loved it they wouldn't didn't want to get rid of it but the, that thing they notice is that wow this has got a lot of power said, yeah it's got a lot of power oh, i thought you guys had no power in your rackets and now uh, I hear that all the time. I remember hitting with Dominic Team when I was doing a doing his work for CNN. I was doing a thing, and he was just coming up and coming. And I did a you know a little thing with him, uh, filming us for about ten minutes hitting. And his coach Gunter uh, Bresnik there I had a hit, and and afterwards Gunter came up and said um, Dominic couldn't believe he he didn't realize you hit the ball so hard. <laughs> and and, it's, and we both laughed. It's like, well, what did he think I would do? I was going to do hit the ball softly like a, some seventy-five-year-old guy. Yeah, we hit the ball hard. We had faster balls in those days. We didn't have to swing harder at it. Uh, it's, it's slightly faster court, so we couldn't swing at, at it. So you know, a lot of the principles are the, the, the same. You know, obviously the strings have been massive difference. Um, you think we know more about recovery? That's been the massive, the huge thing. We know more about recovery. How to how to keep the body healthy, how to bounce back. That means you can go out and you can play harder. You can train a little harder. You can recover. Um, you know, the psychology, uh, I think, of the of the sport is um, it's, sli it's slightly different now. I think, in actual fact, probably in my day, there was more, you know, our day, there was more tactics because we couldn't just last a winner from 20 feet behind the court. Um, but that makes a different tactic as well. Um, so, we had, you know, it was more of a game of chess, I suppose. In my day, uh, you know, because there wasn't, you know, a lot of um, power hitters. Obviously, Boris Becker, Ivan Lendl, uh, and then Agassi and Sampras and Ivanisevic came in towards the end of my career. So they hit the ball bloody hard, that's for sure. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're the, and technique, of course. I think technique, it's, it's, I was sort of came through in the era where it was between old school and, and new, you know, Bjorn Borg open stances, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. You know, Agassi came after after me, so I learned. I had to learn a lot. I had to restructure my game and and went back to the drawing board and learned all that stuff. Um, and I'm fascinated by the movement and and the balance and 
the rotation and, and where all that comes from. It's not just okay, rotate. So okay, how do you rotate? Yeah. Uh, it's 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 different. It's one thing knowing you have to rotate. Another thing, okay, how do we? How does the body actually rotate? So yeah, yeah it's fascinating. I I hated tennis for a while, and then I really enjoyed it at the end, even though I you know, I couldn't quite mentally change my game and 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 learned a lot from it. I want to get back to that hated tennis for a while shortly, but just whilst we're talking about, I guess the the modern game compared to the, I, I always think we, it, during any era in anything, we almost, the longer time goes, the less we respect an era, you know, it's yeah, the, it's it, which is, which is this like crazy, you know, crazy phenomenon that of human beings, I guess, you know, we look back at even like football players, soccer players, and oh my God, he was so slow. I couldn't do this, but we don't really have any idea. Um, But, but on, on that point, I, I was speaking to uh, out in Indian Wells a couple of performance analysts who were obviously studying the game from from that standpoint, and and one thing that they said about Alcaraz and also Rune is and and I ensured me when you when you start watching they are bringing in the hit after second serve and come into the net again. You know, that seems to be something that's maybe disappeared for a while. And then, then the big one, there's certainly Alcaraz. And I think it's something like 82% winning percentage he has on this shot, which is the drop shot, you know, and he's actually playing it after the serve, you know, and it seems like there's a little bit more of that guile potentially coming into the game that, that that hasn't maybe been certainly perceived to have been there the last ten or fifteen years. I don't know if that's what you're seeing as well. Yeah, look, I think um, you know when you're seeing players like Roger Federer bringing the start bringing the drop shot um, in a mid after he's won you know twelve Grand Slams or whatever it is, and all of a sudden he starts incorporating a drop shot. You think, oh, oh this guy's wanting to improve. I mean, uh, just the most you know most brilliant player that we've probably ever seen um, shot wise. Uh, is still learning to, to, to learning his tactics. Um, I think he, you know, he brought in the drop shot. He started for a while there. He wasn't coming near the net, was he? And even winning Wimbledon at the back of the court. And and um, and I, I think tennis does does evolve. But you know, if you look at the really good players, Murray, uh, obviously Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, who improved his touch, they've all got very good drop shots. They all got very good yeah. volleys. They got very good. You know, they've got very good slices. Um, you know, Rafa's just an amazing solution solver. People watch him, most people watch him and go, oh, he's not doing much different. But, you know, if you really watch him playing in a match, you'll make sure it's a war of attrition. You've got to, you know, he has a belief that he can keep it going for a long time and you'll just break players down. But, you know, he changes things up. If somebody's got a rhythm, he'll change it up. And he'll throw in these slices, throw in the drop shots, throw in the, the volleys and, and and things like that and the, the slices. It's uh, and it's and it's necessary because there's so many good players that are doing certain things, and when we lost the sort of serve and volley so aspect so much sort of, what well, if we, if you take one shot out of tennis, the rest the rest of the shots players get better at those shots. Yeah. So it'd be like it'd be like you know playing golf and saying okay we're, what we're going to do is we're going to cut out, cut out the chip shot. If you're if you're within fifty meters, you can just drop it on the green. All right, so hell of a lot more players would be really good at drives and really good at putting, wouldn't they? So you take a shot away, which is primarily the the, the chip charge and the volley, then players get really good at it. So we found that area where everybody was so good, just never missed a damn ball and yeah. running, running, running. And, you know, David David Ferrez and 
and these sort of players were just uh you know were, were brutal and you had to they had to find a way to 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 beat these sort of guys and one of the drop shot and some angles was one of the things that we we've seen come back and talk, talking of modern day players and pat cash being outspoken mr kirios and <laughs> and and i know you've you have been asked this question a lot i'm sure you know it's, it's a big <clears throat> it's a big topic and i guess my my point on you you have been quite outspoken on him not being good for the sport and i guess my challenge to you is he not just a young pat cash i, I don't i never really say he's not good for the sport i think i think he's um i think he's he, he's bad for attitudes yeah uh but you people watch him turn you know people want to watch him and so do I. I mean, he's a brilliant player. He's a he's a extremely brilliant player who who will continually to do well at, at Wimbledon. I'm not sure about the other slams, but with the serve that he's got, I mean, it's the best serve on the tour. Uh, you know, and it's fascinating. It's it's fascinating watching him. I said this quite a m- number of years ago, maybe five years ago. I said if Nick can just improve his mental capacity to be able to focus in matches, just five percent every year or 3% every year, then he'll be a contender for Grand Slams. And that's exactly what he's done. He's done really well in that respect. He realizes that he's never going to be perfect and he's going to explode and he's going to, uh, you know, um, lose his temper. And, you know, I'm certainly one of the ones who, who, who did that. Um, but, you know, not to the disrespect that, you know, I, I, of course, I, I might have yelled at my, my coach in frustration at some stage. But you know, if you ask Barkers how many times I did that, you wouldn't be you count them on the same hand. You know, uh, you, you look give at you a horse Murray or Kyrgios, you got you got to you, you wouldn't be a set without them doing it a handful of times. You know, I did a handful of times my whole career. Um, so was that the big difference? But, you know, that you see it's the, dis- it's the respect. Is that the thing that you see as the big difference of what Nick's doing compared to the bad boys yourself, Johnny Mac? The that 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 period. Um, well, you know, it's hard to say, you know, <laughs> John McEnroe certainly didn't have much respect for any players. Uh, you know, so Bjorn Borg is about the only one. Other than that, he, he got, you wanted to get stuck into you and you, you copped it and you gave it back. And that was, there wasn't microphones around, too many microphones around there. And that was just the, that was just the way, just the way it went. Um, I, I think, you know, John certainly pushed the envelope more than, more than probably should have that, that should have been allowed. No doubts about it. He got away with John got away with a lot, I and mean, he got nailed for quite a lot. But he got away with a lot. Uh, and Nick has got away. He, he plays the he plays the victim very well. And oh, oh my god, everybody's after me, and nobody likes me. And these old players, they, they, they you know, that's not true at all. He's just it's just in his head. Um, but you know, me, it's it's just I think. I was critical of that the match that sits the pass at Wimbledon last year. It just got out of control. You know, the, just the abuse and the, ins- the insulting and the insulting and the, everything else and balls slammed into the, it's, you know, and, and it happens every once in a while in a match, you know, but you just, this, this went on and on and on. Uh, and it just got out of control. And to be, to give Nick credit, I think he realized that and he, he pulled his head in and did pretty well. Uh, it did really well. Uh, and that, and he, and that that should have been a good sign for him to say, you know what, you know, I can I can play this way, okay, you know, I'll let some steam off, um, but I can I can uh, you know I can play really good tennis without having to get into the face of opponents and abuse people in the crowd and abuse umpires and all that sort of stuff. And not to say that I haven't done it, and 
at some stage. Um, but you know, that was that match was a bit out of control, and I think that was, yeah, it, it, they. I think they both players stepped over the line in that match. It wasn't just Nick. What would you do if you coached them? Well, that's an, that's another yeah, that's a whole other thing. I don't think I would coach somebody like that. Um, yeah. because uh, not not because talent wise, I mean, it'd be fantastic. Uh, first of all, I don't think he'd want he'd want to want to coach, but to Nick, it's it's about work work effort, um, output, and input, and and mental stuff. I mean, that's every you know you've got the shots. Uh, it's yeah. it's not the not the case. He's able to do it do it long enough over four, four five or six matches obviously last Wimbledon he got a default from from Rafa but I think he probably would have beaten Rafa anyway you know he wasn't 100% fit but um he didn't have to go through that extra match which was good for him but he did he handled himself well in the final I thought he could have come out and been a, a bucket of nerves so he's not you know he's not far off really putting it all together uh but it's not going to be it's not easier uh, it's not getting easier it's getting harder so he's been out with an injury but you know it would be a mental thing and a physical thing really to to try and get him to just to work a little harder. I'm going to start the campaign. Cash, cash, Kyrgios, Wimbledon, twenty. No, please don't. Please, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't handle it. Like I, I'd last about a week. Either I'd, yeah. Either well, as long as you can last two or... weeks, as long as you can last two weeks, you can get get through Wimbledon, and then that that, that could be it. And and you and, and you Pat of and like I say you, you, uh, a personality now you know you're 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 bigger than just tennis, but if you are at the core of it all a tennis player and a, a bloody successful tennis player, um I forgot to say at the start actually, you're our first Wimbledon singles champion on the podcast, which is oh, okay. which is a, a a real privilege for us to to have you on. Wimbledon. 87 I remember it well as a seven-year-old um but I do I, I I do remember it well that was that era was when I was really getting into tennis it's an obvious it's an obvious natural highlight so I'm going to take that one out because we're going to talk about that anyway what would be your your biggest career highlight outside of Wimbledon 1987 um Davis Cup for sure uh, it goes without saying. Winning two Davis Cups for Australia in Australia yeah. was big. Got to another final. Um, played the US in uh, Florida. Um, that was exciting. Uh, we didn't quite perform as well as we, we could have. They had, had a very good, very solid team. Agassi and Chang. Uh, uh, and, and then probably as, a, as growing up, probably the thrill, the biggest thrill would probably have been... Um, the original Super Saturday at the US Open, uh, in 1984. So, I suppose you were just born then. Um, but that was just they—they they call it the greatest day in tennis history, and it was the semi-final. And in those days, in those days, they had the TV network. Uh, the TV network wanted all the good matches on the weekend, so they had. And now we have men's semi-finals on the the Friday, and then the final on the Sunday. They wanted everything, so they wanted. They had a whole afternoon and night of men's semifinals on the Saturday. And they had the women's final thrown in the middle. And and then the men had to basically wake up in the morning, loosen up, and go down and play on a, a, a twilight final. So on that day, uh, I was the unknown player, but there was 
three players who were vying for world number one. There was Lendl, McEnroe, and Connors. Connors and McEnroe hated each other. Probably still do. Um, they, they, they'd get on. I've seen them. We've had place some Legends events. Everybody seems to be pretty calm and relaxed and respectful these days, but not back then. So they were playing each other in one semifinal. I was playing Lendl in another semifinal. And, uh, you know, I had to run in with Lendl at one stage. I was determined to try and, try and beat him. You know, he was, uh, I think he was the world number one then. The other guys were just behind him. Um, and I lost to him. Um, actually, the beginning of the day was Stan Smith versus John Newcomb in the Legends final, that which went to, I think, 6-4 in the third or 7-5 in the third. Then we came on. Uh, I lost to Lendl 7-6 in the fifth, having had a match point. Lendl hit a great lob over my head for a for a split second, I thought I'd won the match. Um, then then uh, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett, well, number one and two, they were playing the women's final. And that went right down to the wire, I think, 7-5 seven, five, seven, five in, the, in the third. Maybe it was 6-4, but it was it was literally went, went right down to the wire. And then they had McEnroe and Connors, which went to 7-5 in the fifth. So it was 12 hours and literally nonstop. You know, at the at the at the time when I woke up in the morning, I was like, oh "My God, thank God I don't have to play the final." <laughs> I'm exhausted, <laughs> absolutely exhausted. But it was a it was a great thing to motivate me to keep going because I had match point on Lendl and and it, it haunted me for a, for a long time. But people will remember that um, you won't, of course. But uh, you could look up. It's it's you. the top of my list. So in my notes, I have. Oh, right? I've got your career and what I what I've written. Went as soon as you said what I've got written here. Super Saturday, nineteen eighty four, U.S. Open, Lendl, Everett. Yeah, so that was I. I I'll, I would be lying if I said I I remember it as as a as a kid as a baby, but as something that does stick in my mind as someone who likes the history of the sport, who who, who mm. follows it, that is something that I have watched on numerous times. I think it's close to 13 hours of tennis it was in the three matches. So to hear you, what I love about that is you, not that I wanted you to lose, but you lost. Yet, yeah. yet you, and this is, this is something that, you know, as as we go through memories of tennis, it's not just about the winning, you know, it's the, it's the memories, it's the emotions, it's the, the experiences. And, you know, the fact that you so fondly shared that, I think it says so much uh, about you, but also about that day as well. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a different era and it was, but it was, um, you know, it was, I broke, I'd broken through by getting to the semifinal of Wimbledon in 80, in 84, yeah. played McEnroe in a, in a semifinal, I played pretty well considering I was absolutely exhausted by the time I got there because I played the doubles as well uh, which not many play people do but it was my honour to play with Paul McNamee one of the super max okay. so we played uh, Peter was out with a knee injury um, and uh, so I got picked up by by Paul who was who was awesome so we got to the final but uh, the first round match went to four sets uh, every other match went to five sets so I was backing up singles walking on the doubles Caught and playing five set match every single match. We got to the final and then lost to McEnroe and Fleming in five sets. Uh, and uh, and then I played I played John in the in the semi final um, the, the day the day before and played pretty well. But I, I was dead. But it was it was a good match actually. Some good highlights on the, on YouTube of, of that match. And I, I look back at it and go, you know, if you want to think the player was a slow back in those days, just have a look at the way that, you know, I moved into the net and I was still young, but John, the way John moved into the net, 
uh, lightning fast. I mean, just so fast anticipation. And, and the ball was hit hard and fast. I mean, one of the sh- one of the shots he hit was in the tiebreaker in the in the set, second set, maybe. Um, and I sort of came for a, a lunge down to a volley, and it was one of those floating balls. It floated, floated. Looked like it was going out. It looked like it was going out and bounced on the line. And he had no no pace whatsoever. Had him in the backhand corner, and I'm like, I've got him. I've got, I've got lucky here. And it flopped pretty much on the baseline with no pace. And I'm standing and I picked the side and I was hit, I was standing on. I was going to pick this because I was at the net. I was picked the side and I sort of shuffled and bluffed a little bit, but stayed there, hit the ball so hard straight down my line that, and I was like, I'm really quick, as you know, and it, it went past my racket before I even got there. I mean, I got my racket on the ball, but, and you say, look at that and say, Tell me the players didn't hit the ball hard in those days. And it's, it's just like, yep. it was, I, saw, I watched it the other day, somebody pulled it out and I was like, I cannot believe how hard he hit that ball. I cannot believe it. Skinny John McEnroe, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I have to, what, what, what this brings also to me, you, you, you said earlier, and, and we all say it, the modern day of tennis, one of the big changes is the recovery and, and also the physical training, the, that side of things. However, Back in your day, you were playing four or five set singles matches and doubles matches. You were you were you were going through this. It wouldn't happen nowadays. I mean, you you go to I mean, I've been out like Indian Wells and Miami. These singles guys, the seconds are in the quarterfinals of singles, best of three sets, they pull out of doubles. Hmm. Yeah. So 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 if I, I'm not denying that the recovery and the and the science and all of this is is better. However, does that mean that the resilience was better back in the day? You know, because it seems yeah. like you guys, yeah, put yourself through, and you weren't the only one doing doubles. You know, oh, Johnny right. Mack did that, like singles and doubles the whole time. You know, very I mean, it's a serve and volley games, unbelievably tough on the body as well. You know, I I, I don't know. Sometimes there's, there seems to be a missing link for me sometimes on that. That I, I just wonder whether maybe the recovery is better, but the the mentality of the resilience, the perseverance, isn't quite yeah. the same. I don't well, know. you know, I think they're they're conscious of their careers and and not uh, not hurting themselves, but. Yeah, it's a fine line, isn't there? Uh, players pulling out, or they get a sniffle of a cold, or whatever. And now that we didn't, we just got out there and, and toughed it out. And you know, there's not many of the guys in my era that are actually walking properly anymore. You know, all got limps or knee or hip replacements or whatever else. So you got to give these guys credit. They're they're playing till they're 35 and 38, even uh, whatever. But uh, you know, and that's because they they're being selfish. I suppose you have to be selfish as a tennis player because you're the if you're a singles player, certainly um, you have to look after yourself, your, your, your priority. So yeah, look, a lot of the time I certainly if you talk to other commentators and well, we, somebody's pulled out of the match, you go, Oh my goodness, you know, come on, you got, you guys got to tough this out. We're on live TV. You can't just walk off a match. You know, you got to play, you got to put, put, but you know, then they, they last, they survive, they last longer. So yeah. are they sensible or are they, you know, it's, it's a fine line, isn't it? So I, I, I'm sort of coming around to the, you've got you've got to be able to tough matches out and you can't just default every time you you got a, a niggle because when you get to the final of a tournament you're not going to be in perfect shape you're going to be tired sore whatever um, so you've got to be able to play a little bit through that but you can't play through the horrible pain but uh, their their careers are lasting 
longer. I mean, not longer than my era. I mean, before that, the careers lasted way long. I mean, you know, look at Ken Rosewell and Rod Laver. They were playing great tennis at 38. And there's Jimmy Connors, um, you know, as well. So, I mean, they used to play on all, all sorts of surfaces everywhere. And they didn't do any, so, any physical. So maybe you guys were the soft ones. Yeah, I, I reckon we might have been. I don't know what. I don't know what it was about that that era, but there was a lot, lot, lot of injuries as well. Lots of guys had tennis elbow and had to quit and whatever else. So yeah, look, it has. I mean, that's, things have changed, and the, the strings, of course, enable you to hit more topspin and more power. So you can probably generate more pace with with a less effort, I suppose, in 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 some ways. But anyway, let's let's get to the real thing, Pat. That that bastard Lendl beat you seven six <laughs> in the third in eighty four. He beat you five. Out of six times going into Wimbledon, you know, that, that period. That year, I believe you you made Aussie Open final and lost to Edberg. You know, you'd, yeah. you'd come through Edberg in the semis of 87 to to find yourself against Lendl, who would never win Wimbledon and still hasn't to this day. Um, but there was a little bit of heat as well in that relationship. You know, you you guys would, would go out at each other. I spoke to Barker so much about this, you know, like I, <laughs> I love talking to him about getting, I love getting my Pat stories and I used to love getting the girl stories, but also, also the, also the Wimbledon stories. And I remember he said, you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this, but he, he said the morning of, there's two things I told Pat. One was, if he serves at 70% first serves, he wins the match today. And two, we're gonna give we're gonna give Lendl a sore neck with 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 the lob. <laughs> and and, he, and and I don't remember the exact numbers, but he said something like you served at 70.8% or what you just basically hit the target and obviously won the match seven six, six, two, seven, five. Take take us back to nineteen eighty seven, Wimbledon champion. Well, um, yeah, I lost. I played Lendl a few times when I was sort of younger, including including that that U.S. Open semi-final. Uh, I played him on grass. When mm, I think it might have been the same year, maybe the year before. Um, but I beat him in the Australian Open semi-final uh, and on the grass. And so I was going into the final pretty confident. Beat Jimmy Connors. He beat. Uh, he surprised and he surprised me by beating Edberg. Though I wasn't focused necessarily on who was winning. I was just you know whoever won won. But I got to say, I was reasonably happy that uh, that Lendl beat Edberg there. Um, yeah, the 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 court was uh, the courts were fast. You couldn't stay back. You just couldn't stay back. Not against the serve the the serve volley and attacking players of that era. The, the quality was just too good. They'd been in the they would have been in the net. Uh, Connor stayed back a little bit because uh, that's the way he did it. Hit the ball. His, his serve was so just skimmed over the net, and he hit the ball so flat. That you can sort of get away with it, but I think Lendl realised that uh, you know, even though he'd been in a final before, that you know that serving and volleying was was, and he was a very good serve volleyer. I mean, he wasn't a gr- awesome volleyer, but he was he was good. But you need I needed to make just enough volleys, forcing him enough volleys that he'd make a mistake and then or we'll hit. Um, so it was all about it really was about the returning, uh, ironically, and obviously keeping the service percentage up, serving and the volleying I could I could do. The un- unknown was how well. Lendl would serve. He had a big serve, big second serve as well as it kicked. And it was a matter of making him play enough volleys. And, um, you know, I was able to do that. He, for some reason, I don't know why, I was still expecting that. I was expecting him to serve a lot more than my forehand. He just kept serving at the back end. I think my forehand was, was was hit and miss, a little hit and miss. I think he was worried that I would hit a flashing few winners. And at least he knew that he could get with my backhand, he would probably get more, more volleys. 
I don't know. I'd have to, <laughs> I never really asked him about it, to be honest, what the tactics were, but I was pretty happy with that. Um, yeah. And then if, and flip the lob over his head if, if I possibly could, which, uh, which, which was pretty successful. I think it just about hit every one of those. And it was probably I don't know, six or eight of them flipped over his head. And, um, but it was tight. It was tight first set, tiebreaker, nervous. We were both nervous, both, both tight. And I got through that tiebreaker and played a great second set after that. Didn't lose a point on my serve for the whole set. And, and then the third set, he got a break and I managed to break back. And um, uh, yeah, so lost lost a bit of energy, momentum. And I sort of remember sitting down at, uh, what was it, 5-3 uh, and 5-2, uh, 5-4, Something like that, and I looked up to the box, thinking, "Oh, you know, Lendl's up a break here." He's and the Barkers and the and my sports psychologist were on their feet, going, you know, jeering me up. Come on, come on, come on! I mean, you'd see this a lot now, but you don't, you never used to see it then. You know, the coaches never, yeah, you know, quiet and polite and all that sort of stuff, and uh, you know, a little bit of yelling out. But they were both on the you know chair, and I was like, "Oh, okay, they need me to fire up." And that I, I really had to jump around and get on my on my toes then, and and I managed to break twice in a row and. And hold on to win the title. And serving for Wimbledon, you know, you 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 train all your life. You put yourself in pressurized situations on the practice court. You you think these sort of things over. You dream about it, but actually standing up to the line, serving, knowing that if you hold serve one more time, you're the Wimbledon champion forever. Tell us what's going through your head at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in in theory, I, I ideally not much. You just focus on focus on the ball toss. Focus on, and you know, as your, your program says, control the controllables, which is basically your emotions as best you can. But uh, you know, you, you're right. I mean, it, it's you cannot avoid the fact that you're out there about to serve for the for the title. And um, uh, you know, I've done that on a big occasion. I've done that uh, twice in the Davis Cup final. Um, you know, I didn't quite get there. The Australian Open final lost two long five set matches. So I never actually served for it. But um, yeah, you just got to go through go through your routine. I worked with a sports psychologist, so that was, a, was almost, almost a new uh, a new format, a new um, discipline, really. As a sports psychologist at the time, um, he uh, came from the Institute of Sport in Canberra, where they have Olympics Olympic athletes trained there. Uh, I was lucky enough to to work with with Jeff Jeff Bond for. Um, Quite a quite a while. Anne Quinn, my uh, trainer, was there. Doctor Anne Quinn, so she was yeah. very motivational. You know, we we just really positive bunch of guy people, and and uh, and I was pretty negative. You know, I was always seeing the bad side of my game, and and uh, you know, most of the, most of them had to pick me up. I was the worst critic. I was absolutely the worst critic um, to myself. But you know, you go through the routines. You're supposed to be uh, focused, but when you when you stand up, the crowd start roaring. Because I know you're serving for the Wimbledon title, and you just cannot replicate that. You just hope that you can put it all together and and uh, and and stick with your routines. And uh, you know that was about the best I could do, and just hope that everything went according to plan, um, which it did. Uh, just, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, you you know you, you play this point by point, and and that that's and then it was it's really boring to hear that now, players commentating or coaches or, or whatever it happens to be. Football teams, oh, we're just taking one match at a time. Oh, it's just another match. We're playing the World Cup final or FA Cup or whatever, the, the League Cup. It's just, a, but it's just another match. That was the sort of stuff that I was saying that I was, I was taught to say and taught to act. 
Um, I apologize for every every reporter <laughs> can no, no longer get anything juicy out of a, a coach, but it works. It works. That's that's why I did it. And, you know, I believe it. It's like, okay, just take it one point at a time. Don't focus on anything. Uh, but you stand up in, in my head. It straight away came the, it, you, you're serving for the Wimbledon title. Um, don't screw it up. Uh, it actually came a bit, it came a bit more <laughs> expletive than that, actually. <laughs> it, it came straight to my head, which is the exact opposite of how I trained myself and what we did. But I, I laughed. I actually laughed at myself. Um, and uh, it kind of loose, it kind of because I saw the absurdity of what I was actually came straight into, into my brain. And and so I, I giggled. And actually, afterwards, my sports psychologist said, What were you I saw you laughing when you're coming out to serving. And I said, Well, this is what came straight into my head. And I whispered it, you know, told him. And he's like, Oh my God, really? <laughs> I said, I oh, know. That's hilarious, right? Well, after all the training we've done, he said, Well, I worked in a reverse way. He just yeah. kind of laughed and said, and it, and it kind of relaxed me, I suppose. But lucky I, I held to love. So, so, but uh, yeah, you, you kind of an experience like you can never can never imagine is walking out onto onto the center court for a final and then actually serving for the final. And you know, you just pick your spots, work on get the ball toss, and you know, and all the rest is kind of automatic, really. And life changed forever. Well, yeah, I suppose it did. I mean, the, the ironic thing was that, you know, I felt I was one of the top players anyway. You know, I was 11th seed. But two good weeks makes you a legend for life. Um, but I don't feel any, didn't really feel any different. I just, but do it, you have to prove it. You actually have to do it. It's one thing saying, oh, I'm good enough to win. It's another thing actually doing it. And, and uh, you know, I'm one of the lucky few to actually have done it. Um, there's not a lot of Wimbledon champions out there in, in, in singles. And uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, you need to get a bit of luck and you need things to fall your your own way. And I'm the first to admit that uh, you had a bit of luck and everything and things fell my way. And, uh, you know, and you got to take the opportunity when it, when it arises. And I, I think most, you know, players would admit that, even the ones that have won multiple times. You, see, you need a bit of luck. Like, you know, if you... Talk to McEnroe, he won three times. He you know, lost one in the middle there. He could have won probably four or five in a row, but, you know, he lost to Connors, uh, you know, unexpectedly. But, you know, he would say, yeah, he needed a bit of luck. I mean, he played Chris Lewis in the final of one of them. I mean, that was a heck of a bit of luck. You know, he's, he was <laughs> never going to lose Chris Lewis. Louis is a good player. and as I used to train with him quite a bit, but, you know, we all went, my God, Lewis is in the final. So, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, you had to beat Bjorn Borg in one of them and and, and annihilate Connors in the other one. So uh, they're not bad players, those guys. Um, but, you know, you need a bit of luck. So um, I think my father was really happy about that because, you know, he, he said, oh, you know, you're, you're made for life. Um, you know, I don't think he realized I was going to go through a divorce and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Screw those, that all up. Screw <laughs> that all up. Yeah, man. <laughs> But I get the chance to chat with you, so that's 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 a benefit. That's one of the benefits. Well, of life. well, exactly. But I think it, it it is so interesting because I've not I have not won Wimbledon and I've not coached a player to win Wimbledon. But I I I have one lad who was he was actually about he was three hundred in the world ATP, but he got a wild card into the doubles and the mixed doubles, and he went on a bit of a run in the mixed doubles about three years ago. And made the quarterfinals, actually surf for both sets. And, you know, British guy. So you think, oh, the, the pinnacle Wimbledon. I know it's, it's mixed doubles. It's not men's singles, but it's still, it's Wimbledon. And I remember that night we went for dinner 
and he was so stressed because he was sorting flights out to go to America the next day to go and play a challenger tournament. And there was mm. just no life just continued. It just, mm. it just continued, you know? And, and it's almost like we, we build this thing up as coaches, as parents, as players, as we go through the, the hard yards and we're working hard, but life's going to be all good. If we reach that pinnacle, and, you know, there's no pinnacle like the Wimbledon champion in, in our sport. And just even hearing you speak there almost seemed like it applied more pressure because it's then you now have something to prove. You've got you've almost got a, a place to protect. And, mm. and, and I know you've spoken openly in various interviews in various places that you then went into a place of depression, maybe not straight after that, but. How how much does almost the success and that high almost do you think equate to then what can become a low? Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, yeah, but I, I think like everybody, I suppose everybody's different, uh, and it's it just the way that I had having sort of raised, grown up as as uh, the elite athlete. You know, I you know you need some luck. I was just born a good athlete. I don't know, whatever. I was always winning. I was always winning. And then all of a sudden you don't start winning and you start coming to the end of your career and you start getting injured and things don't work for you. You know, what do you, what do you, what else do you know? And that was my, that was, that was my self-belief, self-confidence. And that's the thing with athletes is that you're known for your results. Um, and it's tough. That's why it's really tough on, on juniors. They, you know, you play, you know, it could be a, a little 12 year old, or you could be a giant 12 year old. How's a giant 12 year old, you know, little 12 year old going to be. So you, sh you can't have your self-esteem based on results because anything can happen. Um, but we, as athletes and as tennis players, that's what we compare ourselves to. That's what we do. What's your ranking? What's your ranking? You know, you're better than me. I'm better than you. I beat you in this match. I'm better than you. And that's, and you know, so it's 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 horrible to, to to lose and to come off. But as coaches, I think it's one of the important things to do is is for us to really contemplate, you know, work on the things that we on the process. And you know, looking back, the process for me wasn't necessarily the most enjoyable thing because I used to kill myself. Yeah. Uh, but it was just it was to win matches, and so that was what it was all about. Now my belief, my coaching belief philosophy is is changed. It's it's about enjoying the process, about doing the little things, about the really the fine things, and the and that's that's kind of my job is to to clean up all the all the messy stuff that's around a, around a player's game or nutrition or sleep or or various things like that. That so things can hopefully just fall into place. I mean, some of the best coaching I've ever done. Uh, didn't necessarily have results, but I can walk away from that and go, you know, well, I did a, a heck of an effort. Um, you know, everything was lined up, but it just didn't didn't happen um, as successfully as we wanted. And so be it. But, you know, the, to the nth degree of, you know, getting into meditation, getting into sports psychology, getting into changing rackets, sending strings, adapting all all these little things that, uh, that a coach needs to do. Um, and so the process is is what it's about, not necessarily the results. You say the results will happen. If you go out there and do what we've, we've done and have a belief that you are now fitter because you brought on this trainer and now you're mentally stronger, you, you'll be fine when you're serving for the match or under pressure. 
you'll be better. You'll recover better from that match. You know, you all these things you can put into place. And it costs sometimes they cost a lot of money. You work with some top people, but um, that is the process. And just have a belief in the process and just, just go out there and 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 you'll be fine. Um, and so, you know, I didn't really quite, uh, though I had a good time with Ian and with Barkers and my, my team were a great team. Um, you know, I think I probably relied more on the, on the results because, and that was when the results stopped coming from, from injuries or retirement, then where was my self-esteem coming from? And uh, I wasn't too sure. Lucky I was a, a father and, um, you know, I could put myself in my kids, but you know, there's only, there's only so much that can, that can do you. Yeah. You know, yeah. I did fall into, into bad depression at times. Yeah. And, and was that when you were playing or after you stopped playing? Both, uh, mainly towards the end, at the end. I didn't I didn't want to, as I said, I restructured my game, I rebuilt my game, I had enthusiasm about my game and the biomechanics and all this sort of stuff, which I learned from an Australian guy called Brad Langevad, who was in the UK for, for quite a while. That's where I met him. And I was playing, it was at the end of my career and I played, I played, uh, uh, I had to play qualities at Wimbledon, qualify, which I, which I did. Um, and, he saw me play one match and he'd helped me with my, cause I had a back problem. So I, I had to change my serve. So he helped me a little bit. But you with, landed on the right leg, didn't you? Yes. I used to come in like Boris Beck. The old days, the players, a lot of the players used to step, step in the court. And the reason now they hop in with their, on that front leg, they hop in and then, and then run off. And most people don't realize that tennis rules back in the, I guess in the fifties, as I had a guess, um, was that you cannot your foot could not leave that you could not leave the ground. So when you served, it's you perfect leave for me ground. now. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's all right for me. Yeah, exactly. I'm the same. So, but as soon as you there was a guy looking for you, if your foot came off the ground, oh, foot fault. Okay. So you had to the only way to get into the net and serve volley was you had to walk into the court, basically walk in. So your foot would hit the ground, your into the court as you hit the ball, and so you couldn't hop. So that's where that walk-in serve came. Becker was obviously the most successful server in that of that with that power, but I I was still taught to that. But that 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 wasn't great for my back, so I had to learn the other way around. So I I learned that, and Brad helped me with that. And then he, he saw me play a match at Wimbledon, the Qualies, and I said, "Hey, Brad, how are you? What are you doing?" He said, "I'm over here now." And I said, "Oh, I didn't know that." And he said, "Here's a here's a, a letter. Don't open it until after Wimbledon." And I'm like, okay. He said, promise me not to open it until after Wimbledon. Uh, and I was like, okay, all right. I put it in my bag and I, I qualified, lost to Byron Black first round, uh, which is just, I think it was the last, my last Wimbledon, maybe the second last. Um, and I, I just forgot about the letter. And then I, I found it. I said, oh my, here's this letter. So I opened it up. And this is before the days of the replays and you could go on, log online and get yep. and get YouTube, whatever. He'd watch one, one of my matches and he said, uh, the note was you can't this you can't do that with that shot this shot you can't do that you'll only hit be able to hit that way and then he just basically knew my game and I'm like hmm, okay well I guess he kind of knew my game a little bit anyway but you know I called him up and said how did you say well biomechanically you can't possibly do A B and C and I was like tell me more uh, he said well, and you'll get injured because your knee will be coming through here blah 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 and I said yeah it is injured and so I said. I want to learn. What do you, what do you, and he says, well, I'm, now I'm a scientist. Basically, I'm a scientist. I do biomechanics, uh, body movement special, specialist. And and that's when I really started enjoying tennis. But I couldn't get – I changed my game. I had so much fun doing it, frustrating at times. 
But uh, at the end of my career, I was actually hitting the ball harder than I ever did in my life, serving bigger than I ever did in my life. So I went on to the Legends Tour because they invited me on the Legends Tour, but I still wanted to play on the tour. And I couldn't get onto the tour. They just wouldn't give me a wild card anywhere I went. It was, I got, uh, I, I think I asked for, applied for something like 30-something wild cards, and I got three really? for the year. And that's, and that's, I was just depressed about it. And I said, like, I'm playing Legends events. I don't want to be playing Legends. I want to be playing pro events. And I felt, yeah, really, really, real bad depression. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of sort of came on and off until, you know, and uh, for, for quite a while until I, uh, I did a lot of, you know, I did a lot of soul searching, a lot of meditation, a lot of self help, a lot of, a lot of courses. And uh, the last 20 years has really been, all about that is working on myself and getting better and, um, and uh, yeah, under, understanding the, the mental side of, of being human and, and, and combining that with it, with the tennis. So it's uh yeah, it's an interesting bottleneck, I suppose, when you, when you come to everything can funnels into, to will it work on the court as a coach or yeah. too late for me as a player, of course, but. <laughs> no, but even, I mean, and fair play to your partner, I think also you sharing that, because I I think the reality is most of us in the tennis industry, in various roles that we play, whether that's as a player, as a parent, as a, as a coach, as you know, as a fitness coach, as an academy director, we can hold our self esteem and self worth to to results to the as a coach to the players that you're coaching. You know, there's the, if the player's winning, if, you know, as a player, naturally the results, the tournaments you're playing, you, you know, I think it's such a, it's such a monumental topic actually, because that, that does tend to be, and, and it's, I think it's a, it's a, we need to normalize this conversation because it, yeah. it is what happens. It's you know what I mean. You you're not you're not the first, the last. That you you you're the one that's able to talk about it. But how many people haven't been able to talk about what the, what they've experienced? And I, I mean, I even know. I mean, I I started coaching as I said offline Lloyd Glasspool, Harry Heliavar at the end of last year. One of the big things I've definitely liked about that is the relevance that it's given me. Is like. Mm -hmm. You know, and I and I know enough. Hopefully, at forty three years old, to not put it all just on on that, but it but it has. It's it's massaged my ego a little bit. I'm working with a a good team now. Yeah, you know, I, I'm at, I'm at these I'm at these events, and 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 I would imagine go back ten years if that ended, I would look at myself at that really like me as a person, not me professionally. You know, and I think it's quite a normal thing that a lot of people a lot of people do so if you were it that the person that's listening to this right now what would your message be to them if they're going through a similar sort of experience of questioning their self-worth self-esteem and and falling into depression um let me start by saying the tennis circuit is brutal you know you know this but I'm going to come out and say no one gives a shit about you on the tennis circuit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if you're winning the Grand Slams, they'll 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 kiss your ass mm -hmm. to do it, get you to do interviews and their stuff for them, so they can have a job with the, with the ATP, WTA, whatever TV production. Their job is to kiss your ass so they can you can do something for them. Nobody gives a shit about you. I'm sorry. So you have to give a shit about yourself. 
So you have to understand your value, your self-worth, your your beautifulness, your 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 the incredible thing that that the abilities that you have. And they may not always be able to win Wimbledon tennis or, or the title or whatever, but everybody's got some great skills. And and to see and to see that and to realize that uh that your your team the people around you the nice people around you are so so important all right and so um you know the tennis circuit looks great i mean how often do we we see, we see that it's the same old story in movies or whatever oh these people you know every, i had everything and then i blew it and uh, got into drugs and drink and depression and whatever because it was so empty outside of that yes yes <laughs> so feel yourself full of your own love and your own value and and you know hang and, and the people that really you really like that is so so very important and 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 go out there and try and enjoy enjoy your tennis um that's that's ab- absolutely crucial and that's why following the process and enjoying the process is so important because it's it's have you ever watched i don't know if you've and i notice this all the time at the end of a grand slam end of a super exciting match and I'm in the commentating box and everybody's going crazy. Oh my God, he's finally won the match. It's the greatest shot we've ever seen. Roger Federer, he finally, or whatever the hell it happens to be. Five minutes later, the whole thing's flat. It's like, anyway, um, yeah. you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. That's great. I'm going to go home now. Uh, can we catch a train? Uh, oh, that was fun, wasn't it? Nobody gives a shit. You know, I mean, you, you walk away and go, oh, I didn't, I did. And Federer, would, I'm sure he'd say, Nadal was like, you know, that was, I wanted to push myself and I wanted to see if I could do that. And I did. And I had this great, great pride. But so imagine what it's like when you're losing second round, every tournament or third round, every tournament, you know, it is, it is really soul destroying. So you've got to have that self-love and, and just, and realize that, uh, and, and how to do that. Well, you know, I, I'm not here to preach to you, but, but that's, uh, that's an important thing to know that, you know, you're, you're a very worthy human being. No, it doesn't matter if you win or lose. And that's, it's hard. It's hard. Brilliant, Pat. What's one question that you think someone should have asked you, <laughs> but never has? You should have prepped me on this one. <laughs> I don't, something that popped in my head. I don't know why. It just did. Um, and I probably have been asked this, but one of the one of the mistakes, I'll be honestly saying, one of the mistakes that I see on the circuit and, and my career is switching tennis rackets for money um, contracts. You know, I think that was a mistake. Uh, I, I um, struggled to find a, a racket that I liked after my, my Prince contract. I actually use Yonex. They're, they're, they're very good rackets now. Uh, back then, they weren't so good. Uh, I just couldn't quite find a, the right racket. But I've also seen that in players that, that I've that I've, uh, I've worked with, and they're constantly trying to change rackets. You find a racket, just stick to it. Um, there's not a lot of money unless you're Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, or somebody like that, Murray, whatever, Sharapova, Serena. You, there's not a lot of money in tennis rackets anyway. Just get the tennis racket you like, and you'll win plenty of money with the racket. Um, and you know that's you know. So I reckon probably you know why did you change to a to a, a Yonex racket? Uh, money, <laughs> really instantly, and it was a mistake. So ironically, it was a mistake. So goes to prove it's not it's not always worth it you know uh but you know people do ask me you know what what do you regret about your career and part of me goes well after Wimbledon I had so many offers of so much money and I decided not to take that so I'm not money orientated by any anybody who knows me or knows that I'm not shadow of 
not 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 money on orientated at all. Probably should be more, but um, you know, I had a great office to do that. And I said, well, I should have gone to you know played over in Japan. They're offering me crazy money, and there's somewhere else. And but I was tired, you know, I was I was exhausted. Uh, you know, I had a family too, and so I wanted to spend time with them. Um, so I part of me goes, well, I should have just cash grab, grab that money, you know, and that, that's what I should have done in my career. But then I was looking after trying to look after my career and I still got a lot of injuries anyway. But uh, I mean, Barkers and I went to South Africa to play uh, a, a great, an amazing experience. Unfortunately, it was, it was during the apartheid and I had to go down there. I had to play down there to get into the, into the finals, the ATP finals, which was, which is in uh, Madison Square Gardens in New York in those days. It wasn't called the new ATP finals. It wasn't ATP back then, but uh, Brad Gilbert and I were seven, were eight and nine in the world. We, had to, we went down there to try and whoever did better would, would get to the, would, would get into the finals. And um, that was a big goal for me. That was about the last thing. That I, I mean, I wanted to win the Australian Open. I felt that was coming, um, but Davis Cup, yes. Uh, Wimbledon, yes. Australian Open was probably the next thing, and getting into the ATP Finals was was on the, on that list. And we went down there, and, and we had an amazing time down in Johannesburg. But it was politically charged uh, everywhere else. wasn't down there, you know. And that was so another thing. Did I regret doing that? Do I not regret doing that? But it was an amazing experience, and that was the only time in my career that I actually was in the complete zone for more than you know a small period of time. Um, and I had to play Brad Gilbert in the final, as it turned out. Whoever won that match was in the was in the AT, was in the finals. Uh, and uh, I won the first set, and then I lost the next two sets. It was the best of five set match in those days. And I honestly don't remember anything. And I wish I could get a recording of this match because I want to see it. I don't remember anything until an applause, a, bit, a big a big roar of applause, and I snapped out of out of this like it was like a dream. I snapped out of it. And I, I sort of looked at the scoreboard and Gilbert won a game, but I won 11 in a row. Oh, wow. Uh, so I won six love, five love. And I, don't, and I heard the wrong cheers. And I was like, whoa. I was like, oh, shit, look at the score. I don't remember anything. Uh, it was just a complete zone. So it was, it was, it was quite, an ex, quite an interesting experience in those years. It wasn't, uh, yeah, it was, it was a tough grind. It was the first class seats weren't even as good as the, business class seats in these these days <laughs> you know it's always Parkers and I were traveling around the world it was it was a lot of fun it was it was, uh, it was, it was tough though it was, it was it was a tough grind and if tomorrow or this week it's your it's your retirement party from from the tennis industry what would you like to hear people say about you um that I was a nice guy that'll do that I was honest truthful uh, honest, nice guy, and I think I have been. I haven't always been, <laughs> but I think, I think in general, I am. Um, you know, I fight for. You know, I, I'm passionate, so I, 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 I have lots of charities and things that I that I work, I work with and work towards. And I think, um, you know, I haven't. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm only a human. I'm not perfect, but, but I think I'm generally a, a bloody nice guy. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's good enough. And a good athlete, I suppose. I don't know. I bet I kind of know that anyway. <laughs> it's not, but uh, not anymore. <laughs> you should see me walking around. <laughs> I'm going to the gym now. I'm literally going to spend two hours in the gym rolling and stretching just to get my body moving. <laughs> 
Very good. Tennis tomorrow. I, I, I have a I have a couple of light-hearted things and then a very quick, quick fire round, Pat, because mm. you've, be, you've been a star. You've been, honestly, for it's such a privilege and an honour for me to speak to you, mate. And uh, we, oh. we, we have crossed paths a couple of times. You might not have remembered, but a couple of years ago, actually, in Marbella, I saw you at the breakfast table in Punta Romano. Yeah. You were playing a you were playing a, an IC match. I saw I had, I had the privilege of spending wow. a little bit of time then, and also I'm sure at Bisham Abbey one time with with Barkers, you know. But all the all the stories I've heard and obviously followed you as a tennis fan as well, you know. So it's it's amazing to to speak to you. But I I have to get some some truths. You read a lot on the internet. And it's like, is this is this true? And the starting point is that I read somewhere that early on in your career there was a Hungarian princess <laughs> who, who who offered you a gift of one million dollars, but apparently you didn't accept the money. So, did what is this true? And did you ever find out if this was real or a scam? Where did you get that story? That is actually yeah, Barkers must have told you that. <laughs> no, it's just. This is the weirdest thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, no, I didn't get the money. I didn't know who it was. Uh, allegedly, it was some lady who I didn't want to be indebted to some lady I didn't know who was, who loved me and wanted to give me a million dollars. Allegedly, I, we heard a rumor that something happened with Jimmy Connors, similar. And I talked to him. He said, "Oh, yeah, she did it, did it to me as well." But I didn't. I didn't want to have to. I was, you know. A million dollars is a lot back in those days to give to somebody, and I didn't know what you know. It just just didn't smell right. Um, and I got one of my management group to see if she was real to go over and say hello to her. And she wrote a letter back and said, "How dare you send your management people over to to see if I was real? Of course I'm real." And then there's no there's no such thing as a Hungarian princess. But I, I don't know. It was just smelled a rat, and I just thought, "Oof, uh, God knows what." <laughs> Yeah, so it was. I don't know if she's a princess. I don't know if it was a million bucks. I don't know, but I but if you but if you are listening in Hungary, me and Pat will happily go halfies now. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's probably gone. She said she was old and she wanted to donate some money to something, but I could have. I sort of. I don't know. It was just. It's there's too many question marks for that one. <laughs> the the famous headband, the famous mm. and now. That was actually what probably drew me into you. Maybe, maybe some of the 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 women were out there who fancied you, Pat. But it, well, that wasn't what drew me to you. It was the the black <laughs> as a Newcastle United fan. The black and white headband was the was was the big thing. Now I've always thought oh, it must be because he supports Newcastle United. But after a little bit of research, and you need to tell me if this is true, that this was a tribute to to Rick Nielsen, the guitarist. So yep, tell us, right. tell us. So is this true? Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, Rick Nielsen is a guitarist for Cheap Trick, and Cheap Trick was my favorite band growing up. Uh, they're still one of my favorite bands. Awesome band. Uh, and and um, yeah, he always had black and white uh, checkers and and on his guitar strap and his clothes and stuff back in the, those days. And I just thought it was really cool. I just I just liked. I wanted to do, had a bandana. There was no bandanas back in those days. I was just sort of those headbands and. I got a headband from originally from a fan, a UK, a British fan. She she gave me a just a white toweling bandana. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. So I started getting some of those 
tried to be made and then but i want to put a pattern on it which was not 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 easy my mum literally refused to do it i said mum she was i said mum can you somehow find out how you can she said oh it should be okay because i print on towels but for some reason it was, it was really difficult i don't know um so she said that's a stupid idea that's a stupid idea so uh <laughs> it really took her until until about 1987 before i I think I first got that headband in 84, but it was 87 by the time I actually got some checkered headbands actually made. So, uh, yeah, it came at the right time, I suppose. That was, I'm sure it wasn't for PR reasons, but it was a it was a good PR move, those those headbands as well. I'm yeah, sure. as, it, as it turned out, yeah. But, yeah, I just got to do it for fun, really, because it was a bit boring in those days. I, I The next one I have to ask you, are you still in the WhatsApp group with Peter Crouch about team bonding? Oh, no, not anymore, actually. That's a good... Yeah, I was on... Yeah, I was with Crouchy for a while. He, to... he, he mentioned it on his podcast, which is right, yeah. my interest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's a terrific guy. I haven't seen him for, for quite a while. He's, it's one of the worst things about uh, traveling and stuff that's happened over the last few years. You kind of lose track with, with uh, old friends. But, uh, it's, uh, well, yeah, we... we we hung out a little bit from time to time, um, and but uh, no, I, <laughs> I don't know what's happened to that chat. Uh, that chat group—it's good, 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 good question, actually. <laughs> and and last one before our quick fire: Rafa Nadal, age fourteen, Mallorca. Mm. What what actually happened, and how good was he? Yeah, well, I was uh, I retired, I suppose, a few years before, a couple of years before. There's a Legends event on in Mallorca, and. Um, I was supposed to play Boris Boris Becker, and it was over Easter time. Um, something happened to Boris, as it always does, and he decided to jump on the plane and go home without playing his match. And they were short of, of a of a player to do a match with, and they said, "Well, we've got this young junior guy. He's he's almost fifteen, but he's he's still fourteen. Um, he's a world champion. Uh, you know, do you mind playing playing against him?" And I was like, "Whatever." Yeah, show must go on. We're starting to, we're starting to get the legend circuit going. I was a little concerned because it just definitely takes me a few weeks to get get the heck of the, get used to the clay, and I hadn't certainly practiced much on it. And this uh, kid came out; he was pretty decent size and and pretty strong. I was like, hmm, okay, and that was Rafa. Um, and uh, much to the amusement of the crowd. Rafa beat me in the first set, I don't know, 6-3 or 6-4, just running, chasing shots down all over the place. Played exactly the way he did, obviously not as strong. And um, as he does now, of course, but uh, he, was, he was playing exactly the same way. And I think if you look back at some of his junior matches, they're probably on YouTube, you can see that he, he still plays the same sort of tactics. Uh, yeah, so the crowd were, just thought it was hilarious. I thought, oh, God, I'm not going to get beaten by a 14-year-old, am I? And so I said, okay, that's it. All right, serve, get in, serve and volley, hit his, hit his shitty second serve, get in, chip charge. And I won the second set easy, 6-1 or something like that. And then came the tiebreaker. And then I started, oh, God, 10-point <laughs> tiebreaker, anything can happen. I played a couple of bad points. And he started, he played a couple of unbelievable shots running into the side fence and chasing shots all over the place. And he, and he won the tiebreaker. And I thought, geez, this kid's good. Because uh, I thought the kid would, every any kid would choke in that, yeah, that absolutely. situation but he didn't and uh, i remember walking that the you know he played he played 
he played well. I was, you know, I got to say, I was a little bit embarrassed by the whole thing, but you know, it was, it was fun. It was, wasn't a problem. It was a match. We had a laugh with the crowd and I was trying some drop trick shots that generally didn't come off. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but you know, I was legitimate at the end. I was thought, okay, I got to win this match at least. And I uh, went back in the locker room and the guys just looked at me and they shook their head. They said, you just lost to a 14 year old. And I said, I was dripping with sweat. I said, this kid's really good. And oh my God, he's a 14 year old. He's he's almost 15 though. He's almost 15. Now just looking at me going, we're supposed to be serious guys. You know, we're building up this world, this circuit. And then I'm like, this guy, this kid's really good. (laughs) With with, with every grand slam that's been validated. I I said, listen, he's he's won 14 grand slams. And James, I told you he was good on play when he was 14. (laughs) I mean, he's the greatest clay court I've ever, ever seen. And I was like, this kid's really good. <laughs> so I was I was embarrassed for a few years, but after 14 grand Roland Garros, I'm not, not so embarrassed. It's almost <laughs> it almost becomes a privilege at this point, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I did play it. <laughs> um quick fire round. This can be as quick or as long as you want, but it is quick for a reason. All right, we'll do it quick. Your two toughest ever opponents. Oh, anybody towards the end of my career, <laughs> uh, Andre uh, Medvedev absolutely annihilated me one time. I thought I was playing pretty well. Um, probably in the peak of my career, uh, McEnroe and Becker. Rafa or Roger? Mm, both superstars. I wouldn't separate them. Your favourite Grand Slam? Um... When Wimbledon to watch, I think facilities is Australian Open. Last last one by a long way is the French Open. Should we have line judges or not? Uh, not. We don't need line judges. I think it's it's not a bad thing. Five sets or three at Grand Slams. Five, 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 five and five. <laughs> if you could switch places with one professional athlete for the day, who would it be? Usain Bolt. Because I was a sprinter as a kid. I loved sprinting. Okay. I was actually pretty quick. I was quick. Yeah. I am quick, but over 100 metres, uh, it seems a long way these days. <laughs> and, the, and he's got the cool factor as well, hasn't he, old you said? He would yeah, be a good person. Yeah, it's nice to be able to fly down. <laughs> yeah. At doubles, the ATP are looking into it this year. You know, there's a big there's a big, big kind of review of what's going on. Riley Opelka has recently come out and said, scrap it, we don't need it in the sport. What are your thoughts? Absolutely need doubles. Uh, we're missing. We're going the wrong way. We actually need more team events, more mixed doubles, more doubles, because that's what people play. We need that in the clubs. We need integration. We need community. We need people having, having fun in the tennis clubs and the kids to play. They play mixed doubles, set of mixed, play a set of doubles, a set of singles, whatever it happens to be. We cannot, absolutely not scrap doubles. It's a great sport. It's much more entertaining than the freaking singles matches that we see in the first few few rounds of Grand Slams. It is great. People just got to get out there and, and and watch it. It is it's awesome. I go I go first rounds of Wimbledon doubles. I go and watch this. I say go and watch that. Don't watch don't watch some of these other matches. It's the center court's all over in forty five minutes. Go and watch the doubles. It's great. As a as a current coach on the ATP doubles too, I love that answer, Pat. Oh, and it's just a completely different skill. It's a different skill these days. I mean, yeah, you get the, the the quality of the doubles players is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. You got to hit a ball, the same serve, 140 mile an hour or 220 kilometer 
miles an hour come in, you got to hit it in a, in a section about four foot wide. Otherwise, the guy's going to get it. I mean, tell me that's not skill. I mean, let's yeah. let's celebrate that for for one. Yeah, the best. Just a very very quick side note on it. We did it. We did an actual a podcast, an episode on this, and we I, I got a few people on the panel, and one of the panelists said something which I loved. They said, "If you take the sport of cricket right now." It's been split into you've got you've got your twenty twenty, you've got your one day, you've got your test match, and and all of them are selling out stadiums. However, we don't look down at the twenty twenty players as be it's just a different skill set, and and mm-hmm. within the sport you can have different skill sets and different people excelling in different various forms of the game. Where but if it's marketed well. If we get people knowing who they are, who then people will go and watch and they will be entertained. And somebody might want to be entertained with a test match over five days. That's a that's a different thing. Few beers, you know, it's a bit more chilled. Or some people want the excitement of a of a twenty twenty cricket match. Very similar with with singles and doubles as well. And it, but it ultimately it comes down to whether the ATP want to be bothered to if it's part of their bigger strategic plan, whether they want to market it, but it's uh, it's, it's great to have you, you behind that. It's the ATP tour association of tennis professionals tour. We have to support this, the professionals that are on the tour. And some of them are doubles players. A lot yeah. of them are doubles players. And let's see if we can get an income for them, uh, you know, and the, and the, the WTA players. And yeah, I'm sure the tournament directors who have way more too much power in my opinion on the boards, Way too much. But of course, they're screaming and yelling. What do you mean? All this money we're giving this money to the doubles players. They never sell a damn ticket. Okay, go go and promote something else. Yeah. If you don't like it, promote something else. Go go on a local junior football fair or something like that. You know, this is a professional tennis tour, and and uh, you know, I think the ATP and WTA are losing their their way in some of these things. You know, we need a players' union. There's no doubt. It always has been. And when we we separated, and I was one of the players who. who Got asked to separate because it was the uh, the AT. I was one of the big players when the ATP decided to to move away and start their own tour. And we said, "Yeah, we need our own voice." Yeah, voice is being lost with by tournament directors. I mean, not say lost completely, but it certainly can be overshadowed by, by tournament directors who obviously need to make a living and need to put. But they're promoters. They promote a tour. Yeah, they're low different than rock bands who promote a tour. And and you you know Van Halen or Rolling Stones or whatever, and you say, well, okay, we're playing Wembley today. We're playing we're playing in Paris, uh, you know, something somewhere else the next day. And we want a local promoter to, to put it on. And this is what we want. This is what we have. This is what our product, and this is what we want. And that's what the ATP need to do instead of asking the promoters, oh, what do you think we should do? Oh, and they go, well, I, I think you should. The Rolling Stones should take a deduction of money, and I think we don't need to have all these things, yeah. and we don't need any of the road crew. That's basically what they're saying. They're coming cap, cap in hand to the promoters. They are promoters. They're not tournament directors. They're p- tournament promoters, yeah. and they're no different than rock promoters. And the ATP need to grow some kahunis, and and we need to have a we need to have a, a players' union. And Novak's hundred percent right, and all the old guys are hundred percent behind him, and uh, they need to have their own voice. And uh, and therefore, and the players, the doubles players, need to be put their hand up and go, yeah, we need a players' union, and they're the ones we're fighting for. We, yeah. as in uh, p- so, players. So, uh, slightly off the the quick fire, but I do yeah. often ask him the quick fire PTPA or not. The, the PTPA 
conceptually seems like a, a right idea. You know, we don't want monopolized to, to for the ATP to WTA to monopolize what what they're doing. How does it go from where it is now to it actually being something of substance? Um, I think it's going to probably move in that right direction, but you know, it's they need to. Yeah, that the players need the, the vote and they hire the players union really hires the ATP as a tour. The, the ATP is a tour operator. They own the, the ranking system. I don't know, whatever, whatever it happens to be, but they run the tour and they do a great job at running the tour. And that's, and they should stick by it. That's yeah. what they should do on the tour. And they do a fantastic job. WTA do a fantastic job. And the union has to be separate and they come to the union to get to see what the players get that the players get it. At the moment, it's all joined together, and it's it's uh, it's it's like big farmer and then the government. It's all way too joined together. We need <laughs> a, gonna... we need we need another episode to dig into that further. Pat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, underarm serve or not? You yeah? Planning? Why not? Why not? It's a part of a serve. I've never heard of a player going, "Oh my god, you served underarm serve." I want to complain about that. It's an underarm serve. <laughs> It's, it's a, I mean, I, 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 I mean, I love the Federer thing that he used to come forward and take, you know, it was half volley. It is his serve. I mean, that's kind of what John McEnroe did in our day. I was like, it's a brilliant tactic. I'm like, yeah, great. Oh no, it's not right. He got a hard time. It's just, even McEnroe said, oh, I don't think that's sportsmanlike. Said so John, you have a look at some of your old videos. You are literally six feet inside the baseline hitting yeah. returns. It's almost the same as where Roger was. What do you mean you're not sportsmanlike? I thought it was a brilliant idea. Federer was brilliant at that. Um, yeah, uh, underarm serve is as unfair. It's an underarm serve. Uh, sorry, can you just serve those all the time? <laughs> you can't get a slower serve. Yeah, yeah but it's, it's unfair. It, but tactically, it's also to counter your Ned, sure. Nadal, Medvedev that's standing where. Is it fair that they stand on the back fence? You could you could counter that argument with that. So I I, yeah. I like that. I like that it's tactically being done to to counter someone else's tactic. You know, and yeah, that's absolutely. that's. Problem yeah. solving, right? Yep. This year's winner in Roland Garros 2023, men and women. Just give us one oh. name. One one man, one woman. I honestly don't know. Uh Alcaraz. Uh, I'll say Spy Tech because she she can yeah. <laughs> the one one rule change that you would make in tennis. Well, give me a give me some give me more than one. Um, let's let's on the serve get rid of that. Num that that'd be number two behind throwing the ball toss up and catching it. The ball toss. When does when does the stop clock? When does the serve commence? Surely when the ball's left your hand. When does the stop clock stop? Stop when your service motion is act in action. So why can you throw the ball up and then just stop and catch it and do it again? No, it's a fault. As soon as the ball leaves your hand, it's a fault. No, it's a serve. You no. cannot that's so so ridiculous it's hard to believe and the players oh we're gonna speed up by this don't shake don't talk at the net we've got to speed up the game what are you doing what well, you can throw the ball up five times in a row if you want so that and the and the let on the serve get rid of the let on the serve i think it's uh you play like the rest of the game and if yes oh what if it's match point and the guy hits the let well if the ball hits the serve on the let match point the guy is going to tear like mad the person's going to tear like mad to try and get that it's just like a forehand hitting the net on a match point and dribbling over. It's, it's the excitement of it all. Pat, you've been a star. The very final question, which we ask on this podcast, before you answer it, 
you've got to read the little small print because I'm handing the baton over to you to help bring this next person to the podcast. <laughs> Who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? Oh, well, it depends on where you want to go with this. I'll tell you who people shouldn't be listening to more is a guy called Dave Miley. I think you might know Dave, who is heavily involved in, in the tennis. He tried to become president of the ITF, and he knows more about the game of tennis and the the, the grassroots of tennis than anybody I've ever met. He is, he is brilliant. You want to know how to fix tennis? Give him a call. Yeah. Dave Miley. This He's is an Irishman as well. He'll drink he'll drink a few beers with you. Pat, this is episode 188. Dave Miley was episode 186. No, was he? <laughs> is that yeah. right? Well, great. Okay, so I'm going to come up with somebody else. All right, leave it with me. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's great. you got Dave one. He's brilliant. Uh, I don't know. You'll have to leave it with me. You've uh, stumped me now. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave it with you, but you need to message me. So for a bit of accountability, I think we need to put it out there. So message me when you think of someone and we'll 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 put it out there. Pat Topman, loved it. Brilliant. Absolutely. And I, I know that everyone listening will take so much from that as well. So thank you for your time. You're a good man and uh and I, I'll I'll be in touch. Thanks, buddy. Well, that was pretty cool. And welcome back, champ. <laughs> Why, thank you. I'm still in a bit of shock about that, actually. As you said at the start, a big thank you to to you if you voted for us for Best Tennis Podcast. We did not expect to win it a second year in the row, and it was a really tough, tough group this year. Lots of amazing tennis podcasts, which uh, made it even more exciting. So thank you. Is it right that we should say well done to them as well? Is that, is that the cheesy thing you do? Or do we have to mean that with our whole heart or, you know, but... What to the other podcasts? Yeah, no, on a, on, on a serious note, those that were part of it, a big well done. You know, we know what it takes to 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 produce these, you know, and I think working on pretty much zero budget, it, it, it does take a lot of time, a lot of love, a lot of care and attention. So a big shout out. And I, I know podcast that was in second place, Calvin Betton, who's a good friend of ours here at the podcast. I know he reached out to me and sent me a nice message so a big shout out to Tennis Unfiltered. You know, you guys, you guys are doing doing a great job. So well, well done to you guys as well, and everybody else that was a part of that. The one thing though about about winning these things is you feel I feel like we've got a bit of pressure now. We've got a bit of pressure to deliver and to be the best tennis podcast. But I think today we've done a pretty cool job with our guest. But before we unpack his episode, did he get back to you about it, who we should have on next? <laughs> well, I chased him. And uh, he didn't volunteer and get back immediately. As good as you've been, Pat, I have to throw you under the bus a little bit there. And I, I actually got back and I was a bit cheeky. I said, "Come on, John McEnroe, have you got, have you got Johnny Mac?" And he's replied saying Peter Fleming is his pick. Now, awesome! It's a brilliant pick, and and he's also one step closer to John McEnroe. <laughs> because he was John McEnroe's doubles partner for all of those years. So so Peter Fleming, we are coming for you. You know, watch watch this space. And he's also one of my former coaches. Not he didn't coach me Is for he? long. Didn't coach me for long, but when I used to train down at Queen's Club, he I spent quite a bit of time with him. And Peter's fascinating, you know, got some amazing stories, lived a real tennis life. Is, is a very interesting guy. So uh we'll be looking forward to getting Peter Fleming on the show soon. 
and and what was really cool for for me there. I know we we talked about it for our, but I have to mention it again, Vicky. Our first Wimbledon men's singles champion, you know, and there's not many of them, you know. Pat no, alluded to not in the last us. few years. And if you you basically take Pete Sampras's seven out, you take <laughs> Novak Djokovic's seven out, and you take Roger Federer's eight out. You know, there really <laughs> hasn't been that many men's Wimbledon champions over the last 30, 40 years. So it was it was a real privilege. And, and and I even remember actually, I was I was thinking about it as I was talking to Pat. It's funny you have these quite distinct memories. And I remember freezing and, and that's ridiculous when it was in July. Eating it was really windy. We were on a family day out, but not just a family day out. I guess it was like a community day out. And we went to Holy Island, Lindisfarne. Um, right up in the Northumberland coast. And I was eating my pack of crisps and maybe my egg sandwich. I have a, quite a vivid memory of it. And we were listening to it. And as they were saying, Pat Cash and he wins. And, and then they were describing it as they did so amazingly well. I do so amazingly well on the radio. And then he walked up to his team. He was the first person to do that. It was such a big moment. And he was hugging everyone and he hugged his coach, who at the time was this, what looked like quite an old man, sorry Barkers, uh, with grey hair, grey moustache. And it was like, that guy went on to be my coach and, you know, is still a massive, massive part of my tennis life and, and life life in general. And he looks exactly the same. Anyone that sees Ian Barclay now and then looks at a picture of him in 1987, it is literally the same person, the same man. Um, and, and I have to shout out Barkers as well. So it was probably one of my first vivid memories. And, and I know, Vicky, you've also, uh, having Pat on, it's a, it's a story I've heard so many times from yourself, rightly so, because it's such a great story. But Pat's also been a big influence on, on your career and your life. I know, it was so, it's so weird. Although the chat that you've just had with him is significantly better than the one I did when I was younger. Pat came to Birmingham for the, I think it was the Pepsi Challenge in 1991, an indoor men's event. And um, the local radio station, Radio W, BBC Radio WM, must have thought, okay, it'll be really cool to have a young aspiring tennis player, you know, interview Pat, change it up a little bit. Um, and uh, so, yeah, they got in contact with my club, Edgbaston Priory, and for some reason, they put me forward for it. But I literally was so shy. And even more so, walking into the room and meeting Pat, I was so starstruck. I couldn't speak. He must have been like, "What? What is going on?" And they, I, I didn't listen back to it because I think I don't think I listened to a word he said. I, just looking in his eyes made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> and I asked, probably the. Did he have his headband on? You know what? The headband killed me because I thought, just get through the interview because I'm going to totally see if I can ask him for a headband. Bottled it, didn't literally, didn't even ask him. But the the woman from BBC Radio WM who I was with asked him for me, and he said, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I've given them all out to all the ball kids." <laughs> so I didn't get the checkered headband because that was the big thing, wasn't it back then? So I didn't get one. Did a terrible interview and didn't get a headband. But I went home and um, I was like, "That is such a cool job." Can you imagine having that for a job, interviewing sports stars? And it was that. I think I was about twelve. Um, it was that that set me on the path of, of journalism. And so I've always said, if I ever meet him again, I have to say that terrible interview I did with you when I was 12 spurred me on to go into journalism and, and radio. 
And um, we got the chance to tell him, didn't we, a we couple did. of years ago, which was amazing. I'm sure he wasn't that interested, but it was so lovely going, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you say he's not interested, but I think I think one thing I really took from talking to him, you know, there was this young, good-looking, rock-and-roll star character that won Wimbledon relatively young age, you know, and, and, and that's a, a couple of points for me here. I think it's so interesting. We think that Wimbledon, we always set these goals and it's almost like that's the top of the mountain and that that's it. And almost like that happens and the whole world changes and no, we have no problems anymore. We've talked a lot about this over the last few months on, on, on the show. Whereas life really is that continuum. It, it just continues. You know, and Pat said that himself, like five minutes after the Wimbledon final, everyone's moved on and the stadium's emptied. Everyone's rushing for trains. Everyone's thinking about who can get a coffee. You know, how many sugars could we have in my coffee? Or we live in, in this world where we consume things so so fast. And, and, and for me, that was really fascinating to see. Fast forward how many years it is. 35, 36 years, he's almost been humbled by life and and probably at the time didn't appreciate that 11, 12-year-old who was was speaking to him and, and interview him. He was very, very sweet with me. Okay, he was. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, look, and again, it's not, I'm not saying Pat, you know, Pat Cash, I, I was lucky to meet him with through Ian Barclay. He was always a great guy. But you, you almost can live up to that persona, you know, of, of being this Wimbledon champion, this rock and roll star. And then that has in some ways led to mental health problems and depressions and, you know, feeling like he could never live up to that. And then when results go, you start to have these self-esteem um, issues. And, you know, throughout throughout his life, I'm sure he's had a lot, lot of time to reflect. And it was just, for me, it was so lovely to see this superstar who who's now at a time in his life where he's reflecting and, you know, asking how he wants people to remember him just to be a nice guy you know that was yeah. that was something and he was quite emotional saying it you know and, and what what is important I think does change naturally as we get a little bit older and you know and I'm sure hearing stories that he's impacted people's lives and look, your career you went on and got your master's yeah. degree in broadcast journalism and and had a fantastic broadcast journalism career and now you're doing this and bringing the skill the skill back to life and um, that's that's where I think the true joy is in in what these stars are able to achieve in their life, but maybe it just takes a little bit of time for them to truly understand that, and that's probably right with life in general, I would imagine. I would say he still has that superstar aura about him. I mean, when we saw him in, it was 2021, wasn't it? We were up the road in Marbella um, at a hotel, and there'd been an IC match the night before with Great Britain, and he was playing, was it the rest of the world? I can't remember who, who the teams yeah. were now. And we were at breakfast the morning after our meal and I was sat there, you were at the breakfast bar getting your bacon and he just casually walked past my table. And honestly, fruit, I went... A fruit platter, actually. <laughs> and I, I went back to that 12-year-old, full on went back, jaw dropped. Oh my gosh, Pat Cash has just walked past my breakfast table and I obviously stared at him for the next few minutes getting all of his breakfast and trying to think, am I able now as an adult grown woman to actually go over and say thank you ever so much 
turns out I wasn't. <laughs> I totally choked again. And it was you. I came, you came back and I said, oh my gosh, he's back cash is, is breakfast. And you were like, oh, let's just, just go over and speak to him. I was like, I can't go and disturb his breakfast. And uh, and you just got up and walked over and sat down at his table. I was like, oh God. It's like, uh, it, it's like Take That, isn't it? Or, or, or The Beatles, or it, it is. that. That's, I think, how big those, those guys were at the time. There's a, there's a real aura about him. I remember the same Boris Becker. You know these these players, and maybe because we couldn't consume them as much because social media wasn't around. So it was like now social media is around. It's almost normalised. You know, you see Alcaraz in person. You're like, well, I've just saw Alcaraz yesterday on YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and. Uh, TikTok and you know we they're in our faces a little bit more now whereas back then there was a bit more of the untouchables yeah, I think I you know so. and, and there, there was in that that era there was a bit of a kind of rock and roll band boy band <laughs> feel to it so uh, no a real a real treat for us to have have him on the podcast and the one thing I, the, the last thing I'd like to mention because I as we go through this control the controllables we're, we're approaching 200 episodes there is a lot of key messaging that's coming out and uh, i think key learnings and when we can normalize certain situations that the untouchable people also go through you know human it's all human emotions at the end of the day it's hum, human feelings and when i asked him his greatest memory and i granted i took out the 87 wimbledon wimbledon title and I genuinely had written down Super Saturday in 1984. It it was amazing, I thought, that he went to that as his favourite memory because he lost the match. Yeah. And and it, it goes into this, it plays into this belief that I've got that it's about experiences and it's about memories. And at the time we think it's just about the winning and losing, but it's 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 really not. It's 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 about putting yourself in these situations and taking these opportunities to have just these incredible memories and and what a day that sounded like you know yeah. when, I, when I was looking into it and I was oh, I remember that I didn't remember watching that it was 1984 but oh my goodness imagine having that ticket and, yeah. and, and those matches and you know how how incredible it was and and I thought that was really really interesting and the second point on that Vicky and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this it was also how much tennis they just played then it was unbelievable. And they played doubles the five and sets the and then they played the doubles and then they and, and and actually maybe we are capable of a little bit more than we think. I can't help thinking we're a little bit protected in this day and age. Well, like he said though, that I think there's probably more sensible decisions made on bodies now. He mentioned, didn't he? You know, him and a lot of players in his era, they do struggle now with their bodies. So there's an argument for and against on that. But what what I found really interesting was that Tennis Australia aren't using him. I mean, his passion for tennis is obviously so, so obvious. And um, yeah, it's amazing that all of his experience isn't being put to use with this crop of this generation of players. It is an interesting topic, and, and it's not just Tennis Australia, is it? You can go through all the federations. And it's hard because the bigger the organisation, the more you try and control the culture to a degree. Uh, and when you start trying to control cultures and and control the structure of of how you are running and philosophies, 
the more you end up trying to bring in people that are uh, bringing that same message through and living that right way. And, you know, uh, there has to be a place for a Pat Cash of the world. And it's not just Pat Cash. There's there's hundreds of, of these players out there. Um, but finding that almost X factor maverick role within a within an organization that has so many accountabilities and hoops to jump through and there's so many middle managers that have you know they're looking after their, their own jobs and they want to you know it's not really a risk-taking business <laughs> tennis federations um so so i can i can see it from both sides you know but but certainly you know, someone like Pat brings a brings a wealth of experience, brings a an aura, brings a character that that would that would would provide quality wherever you put them. I'm absolutely sure of that. And a very entertaining character to listen to. I, I've said about several of our guests on the show, but I really do believe with Pat. Again, you could have talked double the length. It's, there's so many parts of the game that he's been involved in, and the stories I imagine are, are endless. And so could we. We could talk endlessly. I'm sure at <laughs> this time, but it's. You've probably had enough of us for this week, but but coming next week is the tennis talker. Talking of talking, uh, anybody that is on Twitter, you will have followed. I'm sure. If you don't, then you need to. The tennis talker, Chris Goldsmith. He's never come out of his shell. He's been behind his keyboard for the last 15 years. He's been trolling people. He's been giving us results. He's someone that is great entertainment to follow. It's, it's actually where I get a lot of my results from. You know, if he's if you're finding out if there's a if there's a betting issue going on or someone is fixing matches out in Tunisia, Chris has always got the finger on his pulse, and I've never understood it because he also works eight ten hours a day in his other job. So you will get to know Chris next week as well. So that's a brilliant one for you to look forward to. But until then, I hope you enjoyed today. And until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables.